You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, Vox and Hops? Since I'm Matt, the vocals of Crypt Drops, and you listen to my podcast, Vox and Hops, where I sit down with fellow men and musicians to talk about their lives, music, and craft beer. I hope that you've had a great week. Sadly, this marks the final spotlight on Redefining Darkness Records episode. I love this record label. You should love this record label. They have actually set up a promo code for all of the Vox and Hops listeners on their Bandcamp page when you are buying some vinyls, CDs, and cassettes. And when you are checking out make sure to use that promo code vox and hops that's v-o-x ampersand h-o-p-s you should do it it's an absolutely amazing record label and they have a whole bunch of amazing bands that deserve your attention because this is a spotlight on redefining darkness records episode i have the pleasure of playing one of their artists and this week i get to play anger rot and the track is coalesced with wickedness taken from their album the divine apostate it is absolutely insane. Make sure that you enjoy it by turning up to 11. Here it is, coalesced with wickedness.
brutal. I loved it to death. Make sure that you go and support Anger Rot. Check out the links that I have put in the description of this podcast. Support Extreme Music. It is super important. Today's episode is a special episode because not only is it a spotlight on Redefining Darkness Records episode, I had the pleasure of chatting with the man behind Redefining Darkness Records, Thomas Haywood. He's amazing. Here it is, Vox and Hops, episode number 151. I warn you, what you are about to hear is very disturbing indeed. Hey, what's up, everyone? Today I'm with Thomas Haywood, the man behind Redefining Darkness Records. Uh, He has toured with Abigail Williams. He plays in Grave Plague. It is great to be with you. I am stoked to do this because right now we are actually doing a spotlight on Redefining Darkness Records segment. It is a month where I play an artist from a label. This month it is Redefining Darkness, so I love to sit down with the record executive to talk more in depth about the label, where what your mindset is, how you guys pick bands. Uh, but let's start off nice and smooth and say, how are you? Oh, hey, thank you. Yeah, I'm well, I'm well. The, you know, night's winding down and this is a great time to have a little chat with a little beverage, you know, and a friend. So uh, yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, of course, yes. And I am thirsty. So let's just, normally I wait till a little bit later, but it's been a long day. It has, yeah. I've already started. So, <laughs> Vox and Hops is all about hanging out with my metal friends and talking about their lives, music and craft beer. So what are you drinking on your side? Because we can't share the same beer, sadly. Right. Yeah. So I cheated a little bit today. So my whole intention was to stop at the store on the way home and grab something, you know, as interesting as I could find. And uh, that just didn't happen today. So I do have, and this is not so crafty, but I found that, and I don't know if you know this about me, but I actually worked in the beverage industry and specifically the beer industry. I worked in since like, I don't know, 2014, maybe. I worked for a distributor for a minute, literally for like a couple months. I got picked up by a brewery distillery out of Kentucky, but I was like a rep for them in, in the Cleveland area. And then from there, I stayed in craft spirits. Um, from then until just last year, I just kind of exited the uh, spirit realm, <laughs> if you would. So I'm going to stretch your show into craft beer and spirits. So... Yeah, so this is actually a company that I had worked for out of Columbus, Ohio. Um, so this the company is Middle West Spirits, and this is their um, Michelone Reserve uh, straight bourbon. But uh, to say this is like five and a half years uh, age right now. This is probably the best bourbon coming from Ohio at the moment, and I made myself a hot toddy because it's just been one of those days. I just need something. Uh, you know, it's been rainy and shitty out and. And, and chilly, you know, for this time of year. So needed to kind of dry off and warm up and, you know, it's perfect. That sounds awesome. And I believe I could be wrong. Correct me in the comments, everyone. I think this is the first time someone's drinking hard liquor on Vox and Hops. Oh, nice. See, there had to be someone. We're, you know, we're metal guys. We're rebels, man. I, they go against the grain. Break the rules. <laughs> for me here in Montreal, it is the complete opposite. It was really hot today. Oh. And I was working outside doing a whole bunch of yard work uh, for my early childhood uh, educator establishment where I, where I work, and I'm drinking a baby mandrel from a Mabarasri. 
That's cool. Which is their session version of their mandrel. Huge shout out to Gael and the rest of the Mabarasari crew for hooking me up with some brews to share nice. during my podcast chats. This uh, clock's in at, a, at 4.1. It's a grisette. And I'm very excited to drink it because I'm thirsty. So uh, let's touch on uh, working for craft beer in, in the craft beer industry. Sure. Were you already a craft beer nerd when you got into that? Or did you become more of one due to that? I was. Um, and you may know this from, from touring around and, and trying to discover new beers. I, I guess I don't know when that all started for you. But uh, I probably started really getting into craft beer around the time I was in Abigail Williams, actually, which was like 07 to 09. So probably 2006, 2007. Um, I was working for a restaurant at the time, part-time. And they were really ahead of the curve with craft beer, at least where I'm from in Cleveland. Um, and so we had, you know, that back then it was almost unheard of to have like 30, 40 tap handles. And, you know, there was only so many craft brewer, uh, breweries in the United States. And so, you know, Stone, obviously Dogfish Head uh, were kind of some of the, the big beginning partners. And it was cool because we were such a, a big account for them that a lot of these guys showed up, you know, and like I got to meet Greg and I got to meet um, Sam from Dogfish and, you know, like I got cool experiences out of that. And the restaurant I worked for is called Melt. I don't know if you ever heard of it. It's been on the Food Network and a lot of travel shows and I think Man vs. Food back in the day when that was a thing. Because we had these like, essentially it was a gourmet grilled cheese sandwich place, like a big comfort food place, but they would make these really obnoxious size sandwiches and so people would like challenge themselves to eat this these monstrosities, but so they got a lot of press. It's it's kind of like died down over the last probably five years. But when they launched, they lost launched in like two thousand five or two thousand six maybe, and it was like lines out the door. Um, you know, it was just really crazy. So I started working for them, and so that kind of opened my eyes. And there was another place. There was a recording studio that my friend owned, and. Uh, you know, we just would record projects there. I was working on a band called System, System Divide, which was on Metal Blade with Sven from Aborted. And um, I was I was writing at the time with them. So I was in Abigail Williams and we would be touring, obviously, and we would come home. And during that home period, uh, I was getting together with my friend Cole at his studio. It, he was a part of the project as well. And we would just write together. And so we were writing the majority of the material at that time. And then because I was in Abigail Williams, I'd have to go back on the road and they wanted someone a little more dedicated. And I was like, it's totally fine. You know, if you guys want to make this a real band and, and be on the road, I understand, like find someone that's dedicated and I'm still in Abigail. So it, it is what it is, you know. So um, there was a place right across the street from the studio. It was really cool. It was called Buckeye Beer Engine. And they were way ahead on craft beer and beer imports. So, and, and all the guys were knowledgeable. And so they would uh, kind of like have us try things. And, uh, you know, Belgian beer was a big thing for us then. And at the time we had gotten into um, some mead. So Vikings Blued, you know, was, was something we were drinking by the bottle back then. And it was pretty early on, man. So at least for where I'm from. So it was, uh, it was pretty cool. And, and Le Fin du Mont, uh, obviously, you know, if you're familiar. And so we got a lot of that stuff back then. And you know, just kind of got indoctrinated pretty early. So that's, that's a very beautiful life experience that uh, you got to be exposed so early. Yeah. Um, this Grisette is absolutely amazing. Exactly what I needed today. It is super drinkable. Nice, refreshing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly what I needed right now. So huge 
shadow and cheers. Is it is it smoky at all? Because aren't grisettes tend not to be this one though. No, this is nice, okay. and smooth, drinkable. I picture myself being a farmer after a hard day's work, <laughs> which is how I feel today. And uh, yeah. I can, yeah, I could go through a few of these. <laughs> um, that's that's really very interesting. Uh, that whole time that you're with Abigail too, I think, uh, was when Samus was on drums. He was he. So I joined before we got Sam, and uh, Zach Gibson was in the band with us who was obviously on Miasma, Black Dahlia Murder. And he went on to tour with Phobia and, um, you know, some other bands here and there. Uh, but, you know, he, he had like a good job that he liked and he struggled, you know, just like a lot of us struggle, like with being on the road and stuff. He just had that back and forth push pull. Like he loved being out then he would hate being out and, and he didn't want to lose his job. And so he's actually still at that job, man. So there's a testament to, him sticking true to that. I mean, it worked, it worked out for him, but it was sad to see him go. And then, yeah, we had to find a replacement. It was funny because not a lot of people know this, but when I had joined uh, forces with Ken, who uh, I'm referring to Ken Sorcerer on here of Abigail Williams, Abigail Williams had just got off a tour with um, dark funeral and enslaved. And my bet, and that was uh, 2006, like the tail end, like November, December is like late 2006. And one of my best friends joined because they had a guitar player uh, that quit like literally the first dates into the tour. A mutual friend called my friend, knowing like how incredible a guitar player he was. And he learned the set, you know, in a day, I think, and flew. they flew him down to Oklahoma and he played the first show, maybe the second show. I think the guitar player played like one show with him or whatever and, and bailed. And so, uh, so he finished that tour with him. And then after that tour... Things got hairy, and Abigail Williams officially broke up, actually. And so my best friend, being my best friend, called me up as uh, Ken and him were still writing material. And he was like, hey, we got this new thing going. Abigail's pretty much done, but do you want to hear this stuff? I think uh, you might be interested in, in trying out and like playing with us. And I'm a drummer by trade. I went to school for percussion in Los Angeles. So, uh, so the project ended up being called Born of Fire, and long story short, we got signed to Roadrunner in 2008. Holy shit. So there's an album, well, not an album full, but there's quite a few songs that uh, no one's really ever heard. I think Ken might have posted some like, kind of like hidden on YouTube. If you search Born of Fire, um, I want to say Burning Bridges is out there. That was like the song that got us signed. And uh, Mike Gitter was our A&R guy who signed like Opeth and, and Cradle and Killswitch and all that. So they courted us for a while. And it was funny because it, they had been courting us as we had been writing. And, you know, it was always kind of like, hey, send us more material, write more, write more. So literally, we were always in the studio at that time, just writing and writing and sending stuff. But Ken was still getting Abigail William tour offers. And so we were just talking to Gitter and Gitter wasn't getting anywhere with like the powers that be, I guess. He was kind of at a stalemate with us. And he was like, well, look, they're not making a decision. You got these new cats you're playing with. Why don't you just go out on this Abigail stuff? You have these offers. Why don't you see if the band gels? Like, let's see how you guys work together. So if it comes to fruition, you at least know, like, you guys can, like, live together in a van. Like, you've experienced that together. You bonded. You know, or, or you'll fall apart and know, like, who's who doesn't fit or, you know, it's like a, a trial, <laughs> a trial marriage or something. Which, you know? which bands it's very important to do. It is. It is. So it's good advice. And so my first tour ever was not long. Um, 
into or not late into 2007 it was like quite early so this all happened very fast but was with um vader and Loveland creation on the death by decibels tour in 2007 which is a huge lineup yeah so it's cool first tour yeah cattle the cap was on that as well awesome uh let's touch on as you mentioned a lot of uh, members get to a point where they can't be on the road anymore yeah uh, you got to that point, and then you took things to a different level, and you started a record label. Yeah, let's touch. Let's touch on that whole point of your life when when you couldn't be the guy out on the road, but you wanted to start dabbling in releasing music. So, um, at the time, I was actually already married. I got married like 2006, and obviously, I joined Abigail the year after. And I had been auditioning for bands. I actually. Got a gig with Into, e- Into Eternity Canadian boys. up in Saskatchewan. Yeah. So I was moving. Like I got a, I took out a loan to like move to Regina. Like it was crazy, man. Um, but then they, I'm glad it happened in hindsight because now that I knew like this wasn't meant to be or whatever. But they did some sketchy things and some things they promised me. They like reneged on like literally the week I was moving. And so I was like, dudes, I can't like change my life and come up here for that. And so, um, so I'm glad it happened before I got there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise I would have been screwed, but I had to pay interest on this loan. I had just taken it out like a week or two ahead of time to like, just be able to move. But Tim was going to have me, he owned like a taxi service. He was going to have me like drive for him and pay me under the table. And like, we, you know, whatever he was, he was accommodating. And then I don't know, just some things happened and things didn't work out. But then I found out some other things that weren't too savory um, about the way they handled business. So I'm kind of glad that didn't work out anyway. So I digress. So I'd been married we had our first child uh, in 2008, and I missed almost like the first year of her life being on the road, you know? And so I told the wife at the time, like, throw up the white flag whenever it becomes too much. Because at the time, I'd be working like a few, you know, whatever jobs, one for my uncle and this other uh, this job at like this ice cream. I was like a, a manager at this ice cream spot. I've, 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 I've scooped ice cream before. There's some fun stories with that one. But um so yeah, I was doing whatever. And then like I'd save money and just give her money. So when I was gone, that she could pay bills when I was gone. And then it was just playing catch up when you get back, you know, kind of thing, which I'm sure a lot of people experience, but she got pregnant again. And so then it was time to figure out like, you know, we're, it's getting, uh, it's going to get even rougher now and I'm not never around. So we got to figure this out. So this tour with, um, goat whore was coming up. It was us and goat whore co-headlining. And then uh, that band Doth, do you yeah, remember? Of course. Yeah, yeah. On Roadrunner, they were support. And um, SWATs, do you remember SWATs? That one I don't remember, no. Successful Right Apocalypse Across the Sky. It was a nuclear blast band, I think. They were support. And there was like one more. So it was actually like kind of a cool lineup. And uh, it was like going to be like our first bus tour, which was kind of exciting. But it was a Finberg tour. We had just kind of lost... Uh, our booking agent before, which was like TKO, it was like Ash and, and the Sumerian guys. And uh, we wanted to change. We were kind of getting written off a little bit because they were doing so much of the gent and the, the core stuff and we weren't really fitting in anymore. And um, so we went to Finberg and it became this like competition. Finberg wanted to like one up these guys. Yeah, I mean, if you know John Finberg, you already, yeah, we won't go there, but. He's an interesting personality, a character, and can be a little difficult to work with. So anyway. He, so he, he, get, he gets a lot of shit done, though. He does get shit done. Yeah. I mean, Nightwish manager. I mean, he, he's accomplished a lot. So we kind of put this in his lap, and he was, like, dead set to, like, 
I don't know, it was like a personal vendetta with TKO or something that he had to like overbook this thing. And so it went from like a normal kind of like, I don't know, 42 days, 45 days, something like that. And I, I was set to do it. I'm like, okay, this will be my last hurrah. I'll do this tour and I'll, I'll step aside, you know. Well, Finberg kept booking. And if you know Finberg well, you know that he'll book you in the best places, but he'll book you in the shittiest places too. It's like no in between. It's like, I mean, well, everything, everything and everything in between. So he would book anyone, any any promoter that would take it. He, you know, he would he would book it. So it ended up being like I don't know, seventy eight days or something. I've heard about this tour for another. Oh time. yeah, absolutely. Okay. I've, I've toured with some people that subsequently must have replaced you. Oh well, yeah, maybe. And 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 I've heard about this epic okay, long well, tour. Ian, I think from who's now in, in aborted now. Shout out, to yeah, you. I love your brother, yeah. Ian's, Ian's the homie. I, I'm pretty sure he jumped on that tour. That was his first tour. Yeah, I wasn't in the band there, but um, yeah, me and my my best friend Mike, who who brought me into the Born of Fire thing, we kind of exited around the same time. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's just it books so far out. It was like three months out, and I knew I'd make like 1,200 bucks. So I was like, "There's no way I can survive." So it almost it like decided it for me essentially. The Seventy day tour. And so then. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was more, man. Yeah, it was long. And I got I started getting nervous. Ken would be Ken would update me like by the day and he's going, Yeah, it's like forty two dates. I'm like, all right, cool. And then he'd be like, Hey, it's forty eight. And I'd be like, Okay. <laughs> you can make that work. Then he's like, Hey, it's fifty four. I'm like, Jesus, dude, what's going on? And then it by the end it was seventy something. I'm like, Hey, dude, I, I just can't do this, man. And so, you know, he was cool, he was understanding. But we me and Ken were really close, like like brother style. Like we had been together through some stuff and um, he moved to Cleveland, so he was actually living with us. Like, he stayed here for two years that we were in the band. The band was really based here. We were all here. So, uh, except Sam, who was in, uh, like, New, New York, New Jersey. So, uh, yeah, anyway, so that, that, you know, spawned the exit. And then uh, I ended up getting divorced and, you know, just life stuff, man. You know, you, I, like, I had to figure out my life and, like, figure out what I wanted to do and went back to school for a little bit. And amidst all this, I was like, I taught percussion for eight years at like a private settlement. Any music type gig is what I was trying to do. Just still make music my life. So I did live sound at a club, um, which you you probably played uh, at some point. Peabody's in Cleveland yeah. before it closed. Yeah, absolutely. I, I did live sound there. Actually, Ken did too when he was living here. And so I got into that when he was leaving. I, I had started uh, doing sound there too. So, you know, just a bunch of random music gigs to, to make, you know, pay the bills or whatever. But I had to kind of reevaluate my life, man, and get my shit together. You know, I was like just about 30 years old at that time. I kind of started late in the game. It's almost like you're trying to discover who you are while still being a musician, you know? like Right. And you have, and you have kids now that you're responsible for, you know? And like that, that has to come first. And so it became, it got to a point where actually um, I had a good friend who got a job with Eighth Day. I don't know if you're familiar with Eighth, Eighth Day Sound. No, not at all. They do like Jay-Z, Madonna. I mean, like big sound company like worldwide they have offices everywhere but one of their offices happens to be in like a cleveland suburb um which is kind of weird because they have like new york we're like a midwest hub i guess they have la they have the uk they may have something in, in uh canada too <laughs> but uh they're huge and so my friend got a gig and he's like dude if you want in like i can get you in but i would never be home and so i really had to make a decision right then and there like Am I going to make music my life and like never see my kids or do I be a part of my kid's life? And so I made the right choice. And uh cool thing was actually my ex was like, and we're, we're real cool. So it was, 
obviously when you split, there's always a bad things you got to get over. But I mean, we we're like super cool today and, and uh, didn't take long for us to get cool, to be honest. But she had a day job. So I literally had my kids like all day during the week. So I was like the mom taking the kids to like library, reading story things. And so it was actually really like wonderful time. You know, I love I had to took a sabbatical for a year. Did you? With my daughter, who was two years old at the time. It's my favorite year of my life. Yeah, yeah. Those little, so I'm glad I did that. Those little moments. Mm-hmm. They, 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 you'll never get them again, you know? Right. Exactly. So that was a choice I made. And then I took a hiatus from everything because I was figuring out my life. And I just wanted to improve my life for the kids, for myself, you know. I was getting older, so uh, I took a complete break. And anything metal-related, it was almost like uh, like I couldn't even stomach it, like, I feel like it had like almost like I'd been so obsessed and driven that it almost like was a like a bad drug type of experience. Like I was addicted. So I felt like. Did you feel like you had failed? No, I felt like uh, I let it take over my life. Okay. Like I, I like a drug or something like abuse. Like I completely let music take over and like forget about. Obviously, I got divorced. Like all these things happened, but it was because I was so focused and driven. Like everything came second for so long. So when I flipped the script. Um, you know, it was probably two or three years of really not doing anything. I actually like played drums for some gigs, like a hip hop thing and like some folk thing. And like, just like I would, I would stick my foot in the water just to do some different things and like not have it be so intense. And so, you know, just to have fun with it again, I guess. I'll just, I'll just take a few puffs of that weed. (laughs) Yeah. Something like that. (laughs) So, you know, uh, and then, and then when, when your life gets straightened out, you start reintroducing things that you love, right? Like things that, you, you know, I can manage this now or or you, you reintroduce this thing that meant something for so long. And, you know, the passion never went away. I, I just really had to focus, you know? And so I just do- dove back in, like almost like nothing happened. And just like all of us, man, you dive down the rabbit hole. It's like, well, what did I miss? Like with all these bands, there's so many great bands coming out. And just all this shit we did when we were 15, like finding the most extreme shit and, and obviously, this is a new age where everything's at your fingertips, so it, you can just die forever. So uh, discovering bands, and then because of uh, my experiences, I had so many friends in the industry, you know? Like, um, I, I was friends with Mike Heller, who had obviously done stuff with System Divide, and he was at some Abigail sessions for us for some reason, too. But he was touring with Fear Factory, and he, had, he still was doing Malignancy, and he was doing side projects with some of my other friends, and... And they wanted to release it, but they didn't know what to do. And they didn't really have any label support. So I was like, why don't I just try to release it, man? Like, let me let me see what I can do. You know, it's a challenge that I haven't tried yet. I haven't done anything on that side of the business. I've tour managed before, but I never, like, jumped on the label side. And so I just wanted to give it a shot. And so that's how we got there. <laughs> that's, uh, uh, were you very wary that you wouldn't be able to give this project what it needed? Not really, because um, because I am so I'm, I'm a workaholic, man. I'm like super driven, super super focused to the to the point of a fault. You know what I mean? Like sometimes things come second because I'm so focused. Like the job has to get done. Like I can't leave something if I'm working on it until it's like I gotta know it's done. So it's not like I'm just not thinking about it, you know, forever. Like let me get it done and then I can check out and go be with the family or whatever, you know. So that's something I constantly am trying to work on, but. Um, <sighs> I was confident in myself, man. I'm like, I know the business. This is what I know. Like, this this has been my metal's been my life forever as a fan. 
And then like the experiences that I learned being in Abigail and signing a major record deal and, and doing all these things that I had experienced in a short amount of time and, and still having all these friends in the industry that I can reach out to. You know, I was, I'm, I'm really good, close friends with Dirk Verbeeren, who's now in Megadeth and, and he was living in Cleveland at the time. So he was a close friend and I had him to, to confide in and ask questions and, you know, they can just lay it out for me. And, and so I started doing my own research and, uh, in 2015, the climate at the time, it was interesting because, you know, having left for a while, you know, when I, when I was in Abigail, especially like right at the beginning in 2007 and, and the whole Roadrunner thing with Born of Fire, the industry was a mess. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. it was because the dig- digital downloads were, were taken over. Yeah. Everyone was freaking out. Yeah. I don't, were you, when did you join Cryptopsy? Right at that point, 2007. Oh yeah. So, you know, man, so people were freaking out. Labels were freaking out. Roadrunner gave us like the worst deal ever. So it was kind of nice that they dropped us. But, um, <laughs> well, it's so terrible. Everyone was afraid. Everyone was scared to, you know, that they weren't going to make money. They were afraid to spend money. They wanted to take all your money. Um, so yeah, it's just really bizarre timing. And by the time I came back, everything kind of started ironing out and, uh, wasn't like great yet, but it was much better. Like 2015, there was tons of small labels everywhere that I didn't remember, didn't, wasn't aware of maybe, um, like dark descent is one. I think they started in 2010, but I kind of checked out, uh, not long after that, like 2010, 2011 is when I checked out. So I missed all that beginning stuff and, and just finding all these like little niche labels, whether they were focused on, uh, just stoner doom specifically or dark descent, like with just death and black metal unspeakable acts was like, at first I thought it was owned by Matt too. I didn't know. Cause they seemed very closely tied together, but it was like kind of this thrash vibe. And so I'm like, man, there's something to this. And these, these labels are growing quick. Like I never even heard of them. And like, it seems like they have all these followers, like they're getting all this attention. Their social media is blowing up. And, you know, I discovered the niche thing and I was like, okay, well, maybe there's something to that. And so the idea was, okay, I never want to be locked into confines necessarily, like as a, as a person, as a musician, as a, as a, as a listener, because I do like everything. I went to school for music. I love Latin jazz. I love progressive music. I love, I love some early hip hop, you know, like I, I really love everything. And so I was like, okay, well, I'll, I'll kind of test this whole theory and, so I started redefining darkness as literally my dark descent model. This was going to be the evil shit. This was going to be old school death metal, black metal. That's it. Like nothing else. And I stuck to that. And uh, But I wanted another outlet. I wanted something where I could kind of spread my wings a little bit and just release good music, music that I like. And it was always going to be on the extreme fringes because that's just my personality. Like anything that I've listened to since I was a kid has been... Uh, something on the outskirts, right? Even hip hop back in the early nineties, like that wasn't mainstream. There was nothing on the radio. Like it was a super underground movement. And so anything that I was into was extreme in its own way. And so, uh, so I started seeing red and it was, it's funny because people ask me about minor threat and is that where it came from? But it was, it was a combination of minor threat seeing red and also, uh, in tombs song seeing red. So, that seeing red just it, it was like my relapse my relapse model where you know over the years obviously when we were coming up in, in the 90s it was really extreme stuff and uh you know obviously they they signed mastodon and and some more uh i wouldn't say mainstream but i guess they never lost their focus of releasing whatever the fuck they wanted to is kind of the point there and i wanted that too 
And so I, I'm redefining darkness to really focus in on the stuff I, I truly love because I do have a real passion for death and black metal, but I love all these other things too. And so why not just help the bands that I believe in and try to at least elevate them to wherever they're trying to go. So that's why the two labels and that's kind of the, I guess, the reasoning behind it, you know. But do they work hand in hand or are they two completely separate? So sometimes it even confuses me still, uh, which is like the biggest <laughs> struggle for me. I, sh- I shouldn't like harp on it so much. If I just let them be, I'm sure it'd be fine. But, you know, the question <laughs> comes up a lot. And a lot of people don't even know that Seeing Red exists or vice versa. Like if I have fans of Seeing Red artists, like they don't know about redefining. So I, I know of it just because it was in your email tag. And then, oh, right. and I went and checked it out further from there. Yeah. Right. So again, redefining the evil shit. I just like to keep it simple. If people remember that, it's easy. And then uh, seeing red, um, you know, I've released post punk. I've released um, grindcore, thrash. There's mostly thrash, and I would say like stoner doom sludge. Um, but there is grind. There is like um, D beat kind of power violence. And then I released a band that sounds like uh, My Bloody Valentine. Again, like. Anything that I like, it, you know, it's it's kind of that platform for that. So when I kind of had to put it together, the business plan portion, I was like, well, how do I do this? Like, I've never ran a business of my own before, really. And if I want to make it legitimate, like, what's the best uh, tactic here? So I decided to do Redefining Darkness LLC. That's my LLC. And Seeing Red's just a subsidiary of that. So it, it really lives under that Redefining Darkness, like, tag, um, like, from like an accounting perspective, I guess, but it is its own entity and they, they do operate very separately. I, I rarely like cross anything ever. It's very liberating for you too, though. Yeah. I, I don't know if you felt trapped at first and that's why you're like, fuck it. I'm just going to start another one. Not really. I mean, I did it at the same time. Like, it's funny that we're talking now because like right now that like this month, I think the 17th of May is my five year anniversary. That's I started cool. in 2015. Congrats. Yeah. Well, I wish, I think with the Corona thing, I, it, it like kind of side, it kind of sideswept all of us, but I wanted to do something special for the five year, and um, I haven't really gotten to it yet. So hopefully, maybe by the, I don't know, I only got a week, I guess. Well, no, it's five years for the whole year. Okay, there you go. I'm going to use that. It's I'm like bands. Use that. We do we do our 25th anniversary, not for the day Anytime. of it. We do the year <laughs> of it. <laughs> right, right. I'll stick with that. Uh, but yeah, it would be cool to do something. But yeah, I started them at the same time, man. Because I, I, knew, I knew myself enough to know that like, well, I love all this, you know, the dark stuff. There's going to be other things that I've, I mean, because there's already bands that my friends were doing that I know I wanted to work with that weren't, that fitting that mold, you know. And so I just launched them at the same time, essentially. Uh, what is the, the ratio between that? Like you're just putting out your friend's music to people uh, sending you stuff and you discovering new bands what, what, what is like the, the ratio of that? Well, obviously that's changed over the years, but um, at, at first the way it started is I think like how a lot of labels start. I think they, you know, just reading um, some stories about uh, label origins. It, it's kind of a similar story of like guys that had friends that were in bands that couldn't get signed or whatever. And they're like, well, fuck it. I'll, I'll release it for you. And um, so my story is no different. Uh, I thought I might get a jump start only because a lot of my friends were in active bands that, were kind of known or they had been in bands that were known and now doing something nif- new and different. And I realized very quickly that that doesn't necessarily matter. <laughs> like this whole named thing where I thought like, Oh yeah, we can build off their name and it doesn't really, well, they'd have to, they'd have to be really active on social media. 
Yeah. Which a lot of people are artists and artists tend to not be very good at social media. Yeah. And at the time, like people get it now, but you know, MySpace had just died really. And Facebook was this new thing. And yeah, a lot of these guys are like, well, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, they didn't take it serious. They're like talking to girls and stuff, you know? Yeah. Let me, let me hook up with this chick. And you know, they're using it for much different things. They weren't business minded, you know? So, um, so yeah, so the ratio now, I mean, it's funny. I get hit up a lot. Uh, we get a lot of submissions. And, you know, it's probably like one in one in 50 that like I go, oh, shit, like this is really good. I do try to check out everything that comes in, even if it's like a snippet. I try to give it like the 20 the second test. If I mean, they, that's not fair either. I try to like uh, listen to something in the background while I'm working sometimes. But I know pretty quickly like, whether it's like not my thing or maybe it's not up to like a standard that I'm I'm trying to hold and not to discourage anyone because if you have a, like a lo-fi recording or so I'm not judging that kind of th- kind of thing but you can tell when like the music's just not there yet or whatever so um usually I could I could judge pretty quickly and I want to have that oh shit moment of like being blown away too you know um and those come those come pretty naturally but sometimes things take a little while to, to digest so I try to I try to give it a little time but I do at least you know, play play little snippets here and, and check out a few tracks and, and go through. But I can't get to everyone all the time. And I do. I used to feel really bad because I never wanted to be that guy that like didn't respond to people. But it's almost like, oh, we'll respond if we're interested kind of thing. And so I, I do try to always um, answer in some way uh, or give some kind of rejection. Because, you know, we've all kind of been there. We've all submitted something at some point or another. And that just like leaving it in the dark and not knowing. Most people would just rather know like, Hey, we're going to pass on this, man. Thanks for sharing. But, you know, good luck to you. You know, it's not for us or or we're not signing anyone right now. I'd rather have the rejection, I think, uh, personally. And so I try to uh, be, be thoughtful and conscious of that with others. Which is good because it gives them closure. A lot of people might just throw it out there and then be waiting and hoping. Who knows? Right. And maybe they didn't submit to someone else because they really want to be on Redefining Darkness. Did they get it? Did they get the mail? I need to send it again. They're, they're calling the postal service. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, not so much physical mail, which is kind of nice. Uh, so it is a lot of like, uh, you know, and because there's so much social media, it's like Facebook getting hip there, getting hip on Instagram, uh, email. So it's like everywhere you get bombarded, but. But it's cool, man. You know, it's just part of the part of the gig. So, uh, what what would be if you had advice for a band that wanted to be on Redefining Darkness Records or on Seeing Red? What what would be the criteria that you would expect from them? Well, that's a, that's an interesting question because I don't I don't know that there's anything specific other than you know have integrity, do it do it for you. Uh, if the music's good, it speaks for itself, really, because everything else could be taught. You know, like as long as I guess the band has to not be stubborn. They have to be really open and and willing to accept a mentor. Cause sometimes I probably overstep my bounds, but it's, I almost get into a management type role with some of these younger bands because I'm just trying to mentor them or trying to uh, educate them. And I'm sure you've experienced stuff that's similar, but there's a lot of stuff that I saw that I, I wasn't a fan of um, on the industry side when I was the artist. And so that was another re- reason for starting the labels was like, I want to be a like true and fair partner to these people, um, you know, as an example that you could probably even relate to. And I don't know what your agreements are, but when we, when I was in Abigail, Candlelight charged us like 
I mean, it was like rough wholesale for our CDs, like seven dollars a piece or something. Yeah, it's 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 pretty bullshit. <laughs> yeah, and we're like, what? We're making three bucks a CD. We have to have them. Um, yeah, we're making shit already on the road. Our guarantees at the time were shit. It's like we have merged. That's great, but I mean, you know, they're just, they're, it's really making it difficult, you know. And so, like, I try to make really fair costs, and you know, like, I, I just try to like all the issues that I had. I try to look out for bands and I, I'm never trying to own publishing. Like I don't want any of that shit. Like I want them to own their own masters. I want them to own their own artwork, their own recordings. So that like when our agreement's over, which most of the time is a handshake, I do have contracts out there, but I try not to, cause I just want to work on a, like a, a case by case and album by album basis. I never want to stick anyone or have anyone feel stuck in a situation they don't want to be in. Um, if they don't want to be in it. Just, it's cool, man. We had our time together. Hopefully uh, there was some positive there and, you know, feel free to move on kind of thing. And luckily I haven't had many, um, really no, no bad situations. So, uh, I, you know, I just try to do right by everyone and, uh, and really be a partner rather than, um, I don't know, the traditional label situations more, it feels like more like a parent child situation, you know, like asking permission or like, yeah, I don't know. Not all situations are like that. I know that, but still, um, you know, I don't, I don't want everyone to feel locked in or, or, uh, confined or, so anyway, so yeah, I tend to, I tend to, to try to be a guide if, if bands are willing. So the, the one thing, you know, getting back to your point or your question is just be open, you know, be open to learning, pushing yourself. I like hard workers, man, like guys that'll just do whatever they need to do to, to get things done. You know, I'll, I'll give advice wherever, man. Like I'll, I'll try to help you with social media posts and like how can, you can be more effective and like whatever you need. I, I'm like literally there for, and it's just me. I don't have a staff. So think about all the bands I work with and I'll, I'll be there for all of them, man. Like I, I do do that. Um, and it's the ones that are open to this stuff and are pushing that like are the most successful. Like if the label and the band are, are working together towards the same goal, it's, a million times more effective than if like a label's doing everything and the band's just kind of expecting things to happen or vice versa. There's some labels that don't do shit and just put it out and the band's going crazy and doing all these posts and their social media's crushing, but the label just literally released it and there's no promo and there's no nothing, you know? And so like, I try to like, I try to encourage my bands to um, be as active as they can because I can't do everything for them. They need to invest in themselves and really like do everything they can as a band. So so I would say, you know, the music speaks for itself. Just be truly passionate about what you do. Be open and willing to work. And that's really it, man. Like, I don't care about, like, you got to have some professional recording and you got to do it. Like, fuck that. Like, that that comes with time. Like, we'll get there. But if the music's there, that's number one. Personality's the next one. And having the right mesh of people, I think. That's awesome. You become essentially like an extra band member almost. Yeah, yeah. And again, I never want to force that on anyone either. So I try to be thoughtful of that. Um, but, you know, again, I've never had problems. I, I try to, to be respectful of everything. And sometimes, you, you know, I, I'm getting bombarded sometimes by many bands and I have a day job and I have a wife and kids. So sometimes some things happen that definitely are annoying. And uh, I, I'm probably pretty direct sometimes and not in an asshole way, but just direct. And, uh, you know, I hope it comes across right. But, um, but, you know, I'm just trying to like get to the point so we don't have to dance around things. And it's just like, Hey dude, I think, you know, here's my opinion or whatever. And, you know, take it or leave it. But if we need a discussion, let's have the discussion. And if not, is my thoughts or whatever. So I just don't like to beat around the bush, you know, which is good. There's no point in wasting time. And 
they, I hope they, they respect and appreciate your input. So far, so Do good. You, no one's bitched me out or anything. So. <laughs> Do you feel, as you mentioned, with uh, 2007, the labels were struggling, really trying to figure out how they can make money the way they used to prior to the whole digital world. Now you mentioned that when you started it up five years ago, it was coming back. Do you feel like what's been happening with COVID will have an impact on the record industry? It's a good question. Um, you know, it's funny how everything's worked out because in 2007, when everyone was freaking out on the industry side, they just didn't know if they would even exist as a business anymore. A lot of them, you know, like really they were all scared. So it's funny how everything turned around with streaming and, you know, labels are making more money on digital than they ever did, mm-hmm. you know? So well, it it's kind of interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's free money, man. So, and granted, I will say like, unless you're really pulling in the numbers, like, you know, there's not much money to be there, but when you're a label and you have like 50 bands on a roster, that all adds up quickly, you know? So, um, so it's definitely a benefit. Uh, you would hope that labels are putting their money where their mouth is and like, hopefully extending some recording budgets or anything to help tour support, whatever, if they're generating this extra income. I don't know if that's true or not, because I'm not obviously dealing with them anymore, but um, I'd want to know where all that revenue is going. So anyway, so with the COVID thing, it's, you know, I'm I'm in it, you know, and uh, me being like small, essentially DIY style. I mean, it it really hasn't affected us, man. I, I thought it would. I really did. But I think with the Trump money, and I know you guys got some money, right? Uh, I think, you know, there's a lot of idiots out there, and I hate to say that, but, you know, this is money to, like, whether you agree with it or disagree with it, it's been given to you, and you don't know what the fuck's going to happen. So hopefully you're using it for the right things. But I think a lot of, you know, a lot of guys are young or whatever, and they're, they're record collectors, and, you know, they're they're out of their minds, and they, they just don't care. They're like, sweet, I got $1,500, whatever, I'm going to buy a shit ton of records, you know? So while I appreciate that, it might not be the smartest move, but uh, but that's what's been happening, man. And it's funny, I work like really closely with Hell's Vet Headbangers, and uh, they said it's been the busiest time like ever for them, like busier than like Christmas. Well, that's good. Everyone's home, right? It's true, man. So I think it's actually increased everyone's business, to be honest. Wow. Okay. Cool. That's good to know. Because I've been hearing about uh, people pushing releases back on the bigger industry scale yeah i can comment on that um so i think where that's coming from number one is kind of the mystery of like how's promotion going to be they can't support it on the road no one's touring how how is this band going to like sustain this or extend this you know to where you know i mean touring is just a form of promotion if you're out on the road all the time you're playing in front of all these people like it's a huge a huge piece of it so i'm sure that's a huge part of it the other part of it at the beginning at least was air freight skyrocketed all, all freight, really. And so when you're manufacturing in places like GZ, which that's where I manufacture all our vinyl and whatever, I do it through a broker through the Czech Republic, which is like for people that don't know and uh, I guess in the, that aren't uh, tied into the industry in that way, it's it's pre- pretty much the, the biggest pressing plant that I'm aware of. The whole city in the Czech Republic like works at this plant. It's like a thing. So uh, obviously air freight's a thing. It like quadrupled. And so there was like no way I was uh, doing any vinyl ordering at that time, at the beginning. So I pushed a few things. So, you know, I think it was a combination of a couple of things. Like, do they really want to invest this money where they don't know what's going to happen and they don't know how promotion's going to be outside of their normal vehicles? You know, like touring's a huge one. 
especially for the for the bigger labels, you know, they expect that kind of thing. So I think that's where it comes from. I think it was some some financial things with some of the the lockdown stuff and even shipping. We didn't know like who could we ship to? Like our country's accepting and some did shut down. Like I I think Luxembourg I couldn't ship to. And um there's another Eastern European uh Estonia. Both of those, like I had some customers. That's true. We we got we got an order from that, and, and we did. You get it right back. Uh, we had to hold it back. Yeah. Yeah. So the cool thing is, uh, I use DHL Global, but pretty much it goes in and they spit it right back out. So it never even goes anywhere. Really, it, it might go to their processing in the states, and then it comes right back. So, you know, we 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 I guess lose a little money in postage when we refund, but uh, but at least it didn't try to make it or get stuck in customs somewhere and lost or whatever because that would be a nightmare so that was another thing too like we didn't know what shipping was what was going to happen like is everything going to fall apart are they going to shut down like the post office so there was a lot of scares at the beginning um but i think now i think people are going to loosen up and it's funny because there's like it's a dead month like nothing has really come out in may and i i can see it dude like i'm starting to get like all these like uh releases are starting to pile up and i'm like fuck i gotta like organize this so it's not a chaotic mess and everyone's going to be fighting for promotion from all the sites at the same time so you know i, I just gotta hope uh for my band's sake that the bands i represent that i'm still able to do my my normal uh promo and not lose any of it competing with all these other labels because i think we're going to see a lot of releases in june and july um just people starting to get back to it so well, that's good to hear that's good to hear because uh, i love new music Let's uh, dance in one last topic, the Into the Darkness, your podcast. Um, I absolutely loved. I have to say, you beat me to it. (laughs) I wanted to interview all Cryptopsy singers individually, which I did. I got Martin Lacroix last year. And then for my one-year anniversary party, I interviewed Lord Worm. Uh-huh. I, I listened to that one. It was he's amazing, of course. That was a great and one. And then yeah. I finally hooked up with Mike DeSalvo, and we shut down Saint Buck, drinking <laughs> far too late into the morning. <laughs> I listened to that one too. Yep. And then I wanted to do a round table with all four of us. That would be amazing. You should still do that. I'm going to, but <laughs> but you just released an epic, epic chat where it was Lord Worm. And Mike DeSalvo, and I listened to it. I loved it. It was amazing. So so take me through Into the Darkness is something that started a while back, but you have picked it back up. Yeah. Yeah. I started around the same time as the labels. I think actually right before launching the labels, I, I started the podcast. And um, like literally around the same time, I might have done like one interview and I think it was for like a site. I want to say it was for um, if you listen to have an early interview with Gregor McIntosh from Paradise Lost. And it was for a site in the UK that I had been like doing some reviews for here and there. Because that's how I started getting back into shit was I started doing reviews. And so I started getting all this new music and was deep diving and stuff. And then the label thing made sense even more with the friends, like everything added up. But the reviews were cool. And then they asked me to do an interview. And I'm like, man, I'm like a huge Paradise Lost fan. The Gregor thing was like, you know, a dream come true, sort of. And I did it and I loved it. We just kind of bullshitted and. Um, like the man, there's something to this. This would be really cool to do. And at that time, I feel like I mean, maybe I'm ignorant, but podcasts weren't really like a thing yet. They weren't really like big and not a lot of metal ones for sure. So I'd like to think I was on some cutting edge thing there, but, but I didn't know anything either. Like I didn't know RSS feed. I didn't, you know, everything was kind of newer, you know, so, um, kind of had to figure some things out, but, uh, 
Yeah, started Into the Darkness, got the logo made from my dude Chris Horst. That was like, dude, do something like Grave. It looks just like Grave. <laughs> and uh, I even like kind of jacked a Grave intro, you know, like, because uh, I, I took the, I literally took Into the Darkness from the song Into the Grave. It's Into the Darkness, Into the Grave, right? The lyrics. So that's where I got it. And it tied in with Redefining Darkness, right? You know, and so I'm like, sweet, this could be a vehicle to just, you know, get get more people to maybe hopefully check out the label, but but have fun in doing it at the same time. And so I started looking at my friends in the industry that, you know, just reaching out to friends first. Like, who can I interview that people might be interested in? So James Murphy was like my first official one. Gregor, like I said, was before that, but like it wasn't initially for Into the Darkness. I just kind of tossed it in there because uh, it made sense. But so I, we did James Murphy and that dude's like me. He can talk, man. And he doesn't stop. So that was really great. And he went through stuff that I never even knew. And I've like stayed with this guy at his house and stuff. Like I, I never knew a lot of this stuff. So it was really cool, especially if you're an old, uh, you know, Florida death metal guy, uh, head like me. And then uh, uh, Trevor, I've obviously known Trevor for a while. Uh, just acquaintances though. Like I don't like, I didn't know him, know him, but um, you know, he's obviously been a, a, a torchbearer for the underground and uh, you know, people might rag on his band as far as like the elite circles of people that I know, you know, uh, cause we're older, like black Dolly is not like cool enough or not. They're too new. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> we didn't listen to him growing up, so it's not, it's, it's not, not true. Cool it's not true. But actually, it's funny because over the years, some of the elite guys I know, they're like, oh, yeah, I checked that out. It's actually pretty good. It's just like melodic death metal. I'm like, yeah, I mean, they do a good job. So uh, so they have been given props by some of the elitists I know. So that's all over with. But um, but yeah, he's a funny guy. Hilarious, obviously. And I'm like, man, he would be great to have on. And they had an album coming out. So it was relevant. And um, and then it died because I was really focused on the labels. And I was like, I can't do everything. Uh, I'm just trying to figure this this thing out. And so, um, you know, over the years I befriended the guys at Hell's Headbangers and, uh, they actually handle all of my uh, fulfillment. So they handle my inventory, they handle my packaging, my shipping. So when you order from me, it actually goes through Hell's. I, I was wondering if you're doing it while you're sleeping. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm still there. I still got to like, uh, you know, whether it's a wholesale order, uh, Somebody got a drop ship or just even dropping off new releases. I still have stuff shipped to my house and I'll bring it over. And I'm literally like a employee there. I feel like it's kind of weird, like a partner in some way. But uh, they're great, great guys. You know, unfortunately, I think they get a bad rap sometimes, but there's nothing to any of that. They're, they're, they're solid dudes who've been doing it for a long time. And uh, Craig, who is like Reaper on uh, Reaper Metal Productions and, and Into the Darkness with me. Hell's Headbangers is owned by four brothers, three brothers, really. And Craig's the youngest of those brothers, so he doesn't have ownership, but he worked for them. And uh, he was kind of the jack of all trades at the warehouse. Like anything they needed, he'd handle like receiving. But if there was ever anything that came up, he'd be the guy that everyone turned to to, to handle the situation. And he was a tech guy and all that. So we befriended each other. Uh, he's the one that kind of brought me in and, and hooked me up with the fulfillment thing, which was a blessing because if any of you dealt with shipping ever, like shipping a CD to Germany is like $13. And it's 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 the bane of my existence. I like giving stuff to my podcast, my Vox and Hops heads. I'm always excited when I sell something. But when ship day comes in, I'm in the worst mood sitting on my computer. It pisses me off to no ends. Well, you know, it sucks for the customer, too, because they're buying a shirt or they're buying a, a CD or whatever. And it's like 
you know, it's 10 or 12 bucks and they got to pay another 10, 12 bucks shipping. And it's like, is a CD really worth 25 bucks? Like, so I struggled with that at the beginning too, man. Thank God for hells. Cause without them, I definitely wouldn't have grown the way I have. My international fan base is really strong because I can ship at least equivalent, uh, internationally as I do domestic, like oh, cool. five bucks, whatever, you know, cool. Japan, cool. Australia, cool. Yeah. So it's just a volume based deal. Like any other thing in, uh, in industry, the more you, the more you deal with, the more you ship, the, the cheaper the rates come down. So, so it works out. So anyway, um, back to the end of the darkness thing, uh, Craig or Reaper, he, he does Hellcast and he's been doing Hellcast forever. And, um, you know, I started doing some things with him and I was like, he used to do some interviews. I was like, well, Hey, what do you think about, you know, if I was ever able to get anyone, like, would you be interested? And he's like, sure. So we did a Glenn Benton thing together, which was actually really hilarious. And we had a really good time and people were receptive and it, it, it grew really quickly. And it took us a while to come back around to it. We always had intended to kind of jump on something like that at a more uh, regular basis but it took till COVID to really have the time, you know, we, none of us have the time. And so when this happened, I'm like, dude, we should get back to this. Like people are just sitting around like YouTube's plays have spiked like crazy. Like let's, let's give some people, like let's do some fun things together, but let's also give some people some cool shit to watch. And so we weren't going to call it into the darkness at all. Like we were, we were just going to do our own thing. And when we were kind of trying to figure out an entity, it kind of got brought up and Craig's like, that's perfect, dude. Let's just use that. Like you already kind of have this. It'll be like a channel or a series within the Reaper metal family now. And you can put on YouTube and I kind of handle all the streaming parts. So he does the video and I do that. So, uh, so yeah, that's how it happened. And I wanted to talk to you about the cryptopsy thing because, uh, it was, it was the biggest challenge we ever had. So we have this like little kind of janky setup it's pretty cool, but you know, it's, it's not like the most professional, uh, set up at, uh, Reaper metal studios, which is like a little office room at hell's headbangers. Uh, it's pretty tiny, but we made it look like a cool, like, uh, like a bedroom kind of like shit all over the walls, you know, just, you know, trying to capture vibe, you know, we don't have any fancy like budget or anything to put into it, just DIY it, but he's got a mixing board and we try to do everything as pro as we can. And, you know, um, we're using OBS to film and do all these things, right? Well, there's a lot of technical hiccups that happen, but when we've never tried to do two people at once, like, so the fact that Lord Worm obviously is technically, technologically challenged, which I'm sure you know, uh, he's got a flip phone, I think still. Yes. So, so it was actually a good thing because we weren't sure how to get, double video like originally he was going to go over to mike's and like have them together but with covid obviously everyone's keeping separation so that wasn't going to work but uh when we found out wormy was going to be on the phone we're like well good we can get him on a phone line i'll put him on my phone and plug him in a channel that way through my phone and uh you know we'll get mike on video perfect you know but it wasn't that easy because then mike and him couldn't hear each other so dirt like literally we didn't know what to do and then we had some some issues with uh, some processing. There was just a lot going on, and we have we have all these cut screens we make to make it so it's like me next to him and like Reaper next to him, and then you know so we have a worm one, a DeSalvo one, a group shot. So all these cuts, like eight to ten different cut cut screens. So you don't think about it when you're watching it, but there's a lot of shit that's going down, right? So I knew you'd appreciate this, so that's why I wanted to to, to dive deeper. But so kind of, Craig was kind of cursing at me about it the whole time, and. 
On the fly, though, I figured out, well, everyone's coming through my headphones, so I'm just going to put my headphones up to the phone where Worm is so he can hear Mike talk. So literally, anytime Mike talked, I'm like, this... So eventually they were able to hear. I realized it because they, they started like bouncing off what they were saying. And that's what we wanted originally. But of at course. the beginning, yeah. when, we, when we first got into the show, we're like, oh, shit. Like, we didn't think about how this was going to work. Like, they're not going to be able to hear each other. So, yeah, it was like just uh, it was spur of the moment. Like, this is what we got to do. You know, that's great. So. Yeah. It was a great, great, great interview. It's good to hear them talk about the old days of cryptopsy and well i'm glad it came off well because what we had to do to make it work we were so worried about like just making it work that i think we got sidetracked and not as engaged as we wanted to be you know as we would like to have been and because you know when you're doing this you just want to have the conversation you don't have to think about all these other things so at the beginning we were definitely like oh shit like scrambling totally off your game yeah (laughs) yeah 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 so but it worked out uh is something into the darkness something that you're going to continue once covid not dies down but uh, we get more freedom and people are more busy or are you going to have to put it back on the back burner yeah you know it's funny because i've obviously paid more attention to your your podcast when when mike originally got on and i started going through and listening to a bunch of different ones and the worm one and, and i'm like man you crank them out and i guess it's a little easier because it's just you and and the way you you're able to upload them and stuff and you're not doing the whole YouTube thing. At least I'm not sure if you are. So I was just like so impressed with like how much you get done. Like, I feel like you have multiple a week. And I'm like, how does he keep up? And he's got kids and he's got a family. Like, so oh, cheers to you on that. Uh, I don't know how you don't know how you do it. Um, and even just finding enough interesting guests. I feel like sometimes it's like pulling out hair like who, who, who could we get who do you want to get um and the fact that you do it all on your own you know thanks for doing this i think it's a great thing for for fans of metal and uh, hopefully more people will, will be tuning in and, and checking you out as, it, as you move forward but but having done it myself now too i'm just like i don't i just don't know how you push it that that far um i guess maybe if i'd have the labels it'd be a different story but uh, you're definitely pushing the boundaries of extremity when it comes to podcasts. So <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we'll, we'll try. Um, obviously, it's easier now because even my day job, you know, it's like part work from home, part out in the field kind of thing, and so I have a little free time uh, here and there, and I try to just kind of fit it in when we when we can. And I do all the scheduling, so I literally just like schedule it around my timeline and the guest timeline. I, I think the the mentality we're using is like to treat it like series so if we need to stop at any point it's like okay this was like a season two or something um season one was kind of the the old stuff when i was doing it on my own whenever season two ends we don't really have a limitation to that it could be 10 episodes could be 20 whatever it'll probably be whenever we have to like stop and reset you know because uh, right now we're, we're able to keep this like weekly thing going but i know that's not going to be possible forever so um you know just keep it interesting keep cool guests that that we're intrigued to talk to and hopefully other people want to hear it too but it's just as much for us as them you know it's always cool to learn and and, uh meet new new people or learn stuff about bands that you've loved forever yeah a lot of cool things come from this you've had a really amazing guest all your guests have been awesome but would you if you had a dream guest who would that be uh it's hard to say because i've been fortunate to uh Probably like yourself, man. I, I don't see you uh, struggling to find any anyone you want to talk to. You know, what I, mean? <laughs> I feel like you've you got everyone under the sun. Uh, you know, I feel like no one's off limits, man. You know, uh, David Vincent's one that's been on on my on my uh, my target list for a while. Um, 
he actually just turned it down. I guess he's not doing anything right now, but I, I did uh, connect with him. I don't know if he's like a, a dream one. It, it's difficult because Into the Darkness is focused at least at, like in the kind of extreme realm. Because obviously like someone big, like a, I don't know, Metallica or someone like that or a Danzig, I don't know, would just be interesting, even though I, I don't care as much these days, but to like maybe ask the questions like, no one asks. That's what we kind of try to do. We essentially the we model ourselves after the Joe Rogan podcast. Like we want this metal kind of think tank, just us talking. I mean, with Joe Rogan, I don't know if you ever listen, but like I never know half the guests he has on. But I'll listen to it and be like, man, this is super interesting. Like I would have never listened to this just based on the guy, but because of the conversations they have and how deep he dives, that's kind of like the basis of our whole thing. It's like let's dive deep. Let's not ask like how's the tour going type questions. You know, like. And you're the same way, but, you know, I, I think we just take it to like, you know, we, we just never press stop until either like they got to go or we're, we're done. You know, somebody's like two hours. So uh, we, we do have chapters now, by the way, people. So you don't have to listen to all two hours. It's like, oh, uh, cool. That's, that's smart. That yeah. yeah. The cryptopsy one, I think I'm not caught up on because it does take time. You have to listen to the whole goddamn thing. But um, but I have included chapters. So the old ones should all be up to date. Cryptopsy should be done soon. But uh you know, Chris Barnes would be an interesting one because we kind of rag on him. And, and it's just because um, he was he was godly, right? He was godly when he was doing it with Cannibal Corpse. And like none of us know what happened. And it's like, is it just me that sounds like a dog? Or is it like, do you guys think like he's regressed? Like what happened? You know, so, you know, not to not to we never want it to be a negative thing. And so it's like trying to like balance uh being interesting and not trying to like uh, play on any negativity to like get views or anything. I never want to do that. But there is things that we think about as fans. I mean, that we go, you know, I wonder what the story is there. Maybe he had throat surgery. Maybe we don't know. Like, I, you know, who knows? True. So like, that would be an interesting one. And, and to be honest, I kind of want to interview Phil from uh, Malevolent Creation, who I know. And he's like really intense and I wouldn't want to do it for the fact, like, I don't know what the hell he's going to say, because he could say some wild shit. But um, but he would be like an intriguing guest, man. Like, I know he he would have no filter. And that's like Glenn. Like, Glenn was my favorite because it was just fun. Like, and he's like a funny guy. You know, Billy Milano would be great because I think he's like a guy with no filter. I just want people to be real and not conscious or you know, I hope. It's funny because I'm, and I'm sure you, you get this too, dude. But look, as you talk to people, you can feel them like start to open up. Yes, and like just be comfortable. Yes, because everyone has everyone has like their interview face. Right, right. But with a podcast, you break that down, and it, yeah. they somehow trust you. Yeah, well, they forget. Like quickly. They forget <laughs> yeah, I normally always try to. I always have like a spicy question or something, and I drop it around. Yeah. 18, 20 minutes into an interview because that's when I feel people get put their guard down a little bit. It's true, dude. It happens. You can feel it happen. You're like, all right, now I can ask this question. And, and, and again, we never want a nice, soft question in your mind to follow that one up. Yeah, right, right. Ease the blow. I mean, there was stuff with Glenn that we wanted to ask that obviously, you know, uh, we had actually talked pre going in and, and he had kind of asked us like not to ask certain things, but, but he divulged stuff to us off air which was cool. And we talked after the interview too. He kept going with stuff and, and he opened up about it on his own. Like we didn't even have to ask him, but we kept it off air. We kept it respectful. And, you have to. Um, yeah. And we still got, we still got some cool answers for ourselves that, that we know now. And because we were fans and we were just curious and it was, it was cool enough for him to even open up about it to us. So, so I, you know, it's, it's, again, it's just cool to hear 
Dude, like the cryptopsy stuff, like I didn't know about that infamous show where DeSalvo killed Lord Worm and like like that's so fucking cool, you know? Like who would who wouldn't want to hear this stuff, you know? Or him so. sleeping in the coffin. <laughs> Are you have you slept in the coffin? I have not slept in the coffin, no, but But they own the coffin still, right? It was in the jam room. I don't know where it went. We had this awesome jam room in Cité de Mille, which I talk about a lot on the podcast. It's so important to the Montreal metal scene. When it got cleaned out, I don't know where it went. Oh, man. It must be at Flo's house, maybe, but I doubt Flo kept the coffin in his house, to be honest. <laughs> well, it becomes like a... An you know, you can't have it around kids, man. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, this coffin fell on him. It's... Do you ever? I don't know. If you're, we're the same age, right? Are you? Uh, I'm. I'll be 39 this year. I'm turning 37 this year. Yeah. Okay, close. I don't know if you remember 1984. Maybe it was just a U.S. thing, or maybe it was a Cleveland thing. We called it Fridge Core 84, and it's because kids were literally dying in refrigerators because they were like hiding in them outside. Oh, I've heard about. Yeah. You got to take the door off. Yeah. Got to take the door <laughs> off, dude. And so I think of that with a coffin, like. You know, kids like, what's this? Gets in. And, you know. <laughs> could, could be could be a bad thing. Oh, that's awesome. Thomas, thank you so much for taking the time. Cheers, man. Sharing a drink with me, talking about a lot of great stuff. Uh, everybody, go support Redefining Darkness Records, Seeing Red Records. Go listen to Into the Darkness podcast. Uh, lots of great stuff there, and it's been an absolute pleasure. So cheers. Thank you so much. Cheers, brother. Thanks for the opportunity, and uh, I will... I'll be a, a follower till the, the day I can't be. So, <laughs> Cheers. Thank you. Cheers, man. Hey, thank you all so much for listening right to the end. You know that I love and appreciate that. Thomas, such a cool dude. I sincerely enjoyed this conversation. I liked his vibe. Thomas is an excellent human, and he's doing such great things with the Redefining Darkness and Seeing Red Records. Check them out. Follow them. Support them. Use that 15% promo code for Redefining Darkness Bandcamp page. That's uh, Vox and Hops. That is V-O-X ampersand H-O-P-S. You get 15% off of all vinyl, CDs, and cassettes. Do it. Support Extreme Music. Thank you, Thomas. I appreciate your support. And please keep supporting extreme underground music. I love it to death. I hope you guys have a great rest of the week. I have one more episode coming at you on Friday. But until then, remember to enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. Cheers, Vox and Offsets. Yes, rock everyone. I'm Hal Schwartz. And I'm Flynn McClain. Together we host None But the Brave, a podcast dedicated to the music and career of Bruce Springsteen. Bruce and E Street Band are on tour right now for the first time in six years, and we're taking a detailed look at what's happening on stage in our bi-weekly episodes. We've also been recently joined by some very exciting guests, including rock journalist Warren Zanes and Stephen Hyden, Backstreet's Magazine founder Charles Cross, and Barstool's Kirk Menahan. If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to Nimba the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform, and we hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you so much! We'll be seeing you!